My name is Danielle Walker, and you are listening to On the Ground. Hey, Gear Up. Here we are on another episode of On the Ground, and our guest is awesome today. Alexandria Robinson Rogers, or as I like to call her, Allie, is a leader in the Office of Postsecondary Readiness at the School District of Philadelphia. She is also my former boss. I met Allie well before Gear Up, but in the time that I got to know her, I found her to be a strategic planner, a leader, um, and someone who truly understands the needs of students in schools. So with that, let's jump into our chat. All right, so why don't you start out by telling me about yourself and how you got to the world that involves Gear Up, not Gear Up specifically, but just the world of Gear Up. Yeah, um, I think maybe interesting, maybe not interesting. Um, I think I always had a passion for helping people. Um, Ironically, my name is Alexandria, which means helper of man. And so I grew up, once I started learning about my name and where it came came from, thinking and believing that that was my sole purpose here on earth, right? And so um, with that lens in mind, I really had an affinity for young people and youth development when I was younger. And um, I had a lot of kids at home, you know, and I really wanted to be able to support their development, understand more about what students needed. Um, And so I started off kind of in an informal education space. I worked at the Franklin Institute um, as a manager for youth programs, really supporting students who wanted to pursue careers in STEM. Um, And then I just became more fascinated with each turn. And so I've kind of worked at um, every level. So I was a manager first and then I was a, um, well, matter of fact, I was a coordinator first, then I was a manager, then I was assistant director, then I was a director, then I was um, an executive director and then um, became a chief of staff and now kind of in the, the leading the work stage again. Um, And I think that even though it started initially with my passion around supporting students in their dreams, um, it emerged into how do I support adults in supporting students in their dreams? And now I think I'm very much fascinated with how do we create systems to support adults who support students in their dreams? So there will be plenty of pauses throughout this episode because I always pause to highlight really great points. And Allie is going to make a lot of really good points. But this one in particular is one that I just had to stop and kind of highlight because Allie is talking about the connectedness of the work that Garib does or just in general college access work. Um, It's not just the student that you're serving. You're also serving family members that support that student. You're also serving teachers that support that student. You're also serving the overall school community that also supports that student. So the work that you do is super important and is also super connected. Um, And so that's the work that I get to do every day. It's the work I love to do and excited that I've had the opportunity over the past 10 years to um, include gear up in that portfolio of work, right? Because that's what it's all about. 
So I think that's my kind of story. You forgot to include that you were my boss. Um, yes, I was <laughs> your boss. You were my boss. So, <laughs> so it's good to, one, have the opportunity to sit and chat with you. Um, because I think something that you mentioned, I think is important to me, and I'm willing to bet um, it's, willing, it, it's probably important to a lot of the people that are listening right now. And that's the comment you made about like supporting students and supporting people that support them. Um, and I wonder, like out of all the things that you've gotten to do over the course of your career, what makes this important? What makes this, I don't know, it, it seems like you've been in the work for, for a while now. So I guess what, what makes this one like the one that sticks more um, for you? Yeah, I think that as I think about the um, experiences of young people as they transi- transition in their um, into their adulthood and into their careers, there were often times that I realized that things were missing from their experience. Um, and the one thing that I'm absolutely clear about, especially in the landscape of um, of education and communities that I serve specifically in urban areas, there are very high rates of poverty. There are um, high rates of underserved and under-resourced families. And I think that the work that we all do, like in the gear up community, in the broader college and career community, if we don't make the adjustments of really understanding how strong systems need to be and how strong families need to be in order for students to be strong, uh, we're not going to have the impact that we would really like to see because students getting to ultimately through college or whatever other pathway, getting to their career and being able to, to earn a wage that can truly provide value and sustain a family Um, is going to be critical to changing our rates of poverty in this country. There's a podcast that I listen to that I really enjoy. And every single time the host hears something that inspires him or resonates with him, he says, so good. And he goes on and on and on. And I could go on and on and on about what Allie just shared. You know, the work that you do every day is not just about how many kids get into college or how many students and families attend a gear up activity. This is about breaking cycles of poverty. This is about increasing students' opportunity to make a living wage. The work that you do every day is about changing lives. So I think that's why it's really important to me now. It's really about um, from a more of a, I would say, an equity lens, right? That there are students who just do not receive the same level of supports. I think I did a, um, I read an article and, and did a webinar a couple of weeks ago. And I said, you know, it's like the difference between a student who has, you know, if they're at the end of a staircase and their career is at the top of the staircase, there are students who absolutely have a marble staircase with a gold handrail. And then there are students who have um, a staircase that has broken landings, no railing, Um, you know, they're trying to hop over and they're slipping and falling and being able to strengthen that staircase to the ultimate goal of ensuring they can get to the career they need so that they can truly um, earn the wages that they need in order to sustain their life and family and and really change the landscape of poverty in this country or kind of why I think all this is important. So you already kind of like jumped into some of the 
the barriers or the things that I think a lot of coordinators, directors, or whomever is in this kind of circle of work um, that they're kind of tackling, I guess, in terms of identifying success um, and helping students and families kind of grow out of, I don't know, the the places of lack that a lot of them may be in. So I, what do we do? Like, <laughs> how do we, <laughs> That's that's a loaded question, but like, you know, you, we hear conversations a lot um, about the things that are happening in government policy-wise. We hear a lot of conversations just about, like, you know, interventions and things that schools are doing individually. But I don't know, what do you see as, like, the systems or methods of kind of tackling or beginning to tackle um, some of these barriers that we're seeing? Ooh. That is a loaded question, Danielle. You're lucky I'm <laughs> getting those from you. I think one of the biggest system barriers is our lens around equity, right? And I think it is all really, it's almost like mindset at multiple levels, right? At the system level, um, what are those deficit mindsets that, or systems, if you will, that are in place that prohibit certain groups of people from reaching certain things, But I also think it's the people within the system and their expectations around what people can do. Um, I definitely think that that's a barrier. And I think that it translates down to every level, because even as staff working with students and families, if we don't shift our mindset around how we serve them, what they really need, and switch it to a lens of identifying or working to hear what they need, right? A lot of times we come into the spaces and we're like, oh, well, I think this, right? That I think is based on what our own individual experience is versus the experience of the families and children we serve. So that's a mindset shift. And then I think at the student level, trying to shift their mindset, right? Because the students who oftentimes don't have that strong staircase and don't have everything they need that we're trying to provide supports and resources for, we also have to shift their mindset as to what's possible. You know, like I um, was in conversation with someone maybe last week and and they were kind of saying, and it was like a light bulb going off that, of course, a light bulb that 100% agreed with, that she was working with some students and she mentioned something about someone being an equestrian and Mm -hmm. students in our community were like, well, what is that? You know, I've never heard of that. That you, you just made up something. Right. But it just goes to show that students in different communities are provided with information in a different way. So being able to shift students' minds and their mindset around what's possible has to happen through exposure to a wide variety of opportunities, as well as a deep connection between what they learn um, and and what they will be, because that's what's going to enhance the engagement. So I don't know if I answered your question. I kind of tried to go through multiple levels there. No, you went over and above. Um, I, I really like this, the, the phrasing deficit mindset. I think that's something that probably could inform a lot of the, the work that we do. What role does innovation play in us kind of combating the, the challenges that we're seeing right now? Yeah, I think innovation um, in 
I don't want to say in collaboration with, but innovation connected to collaboration and creativity, right? Those three things together, I think are what we need as a community, especially those of us in Garrett programs or college and career readiness programs really need to start focusing more on in order uh, to be more successful with the supports we provide because like innovation, like think about it, innovation pushes us to do things that have never been done before just by nature of the definition. And so as practitioners, when we come into spaces and we um, try to provide the pro- the same program we did last year, the same program we did the year before, it's just not innovative, right? We're just doing the same thing over and over again. And even if those things yield positive results in student engagement or student participation, because things change every day and so rapidly now with, you know, with the state of technology, if we don't keep our finger on the pulse of what's happening now and then push our innovative thinking to expand beyond that, we're just kind of going to be running on the, on the wheel. And then I think the collaboration piece connected to innovation is really about how do we ensure that more voices are at the table, Mm. right? Um, Especially student voice, especially voices of people who um, we may not traditionally consider as, you know, as the person that has this information. It's so funny because, you know, at my, well, you know this um, because we've worked together before, um, but they tease me all the time at work because I am absolutely the one that every time we have to make a decision or plan a program, I'm inviting 75 people, not because I want the meeting to be overdrawn, but what I don't want is that the systems we create or the beliefs we have about what a meeting should be to inform the results and the creativity and the ideas that can be garnered when you have different types of voices at the table. Um, I think the, one of the most powerful voices um, are the voice of students um, and hearing from them. I mean, and what we've been hearing, what I've been hearing all year from students is we want to know how to be adults, right? Even moving past our, our gear up supports, from an academic standpoint, they're like, I don't know what it means to be adult. So, all right, I know that my mom bought a house. Well, how does she do that? I don't know how to buy a house. Mm-hmm. So you, you want me to go to math class to learn what? If my math class does not inherently teach me about how, <laughs> how to buy a house, then I'm not, you know, I'm still not prepared when I leave high school. And so I think that create that collaboration with voices has to be connected to the innovation and then I think we have to be really creative, right? We have to be willing to see what we don't see. And I think for a lot of people, that is definitely another mind shift, right? Like we we are so used to being like, oh, well, I, well, I see that tree and the tree looks green and kids need green trees versus saying, okay, I see the tree is green, but what else do I see around the tree? And what is it that I'm not paying attention to? And really kind of thinking about um, all of the other characteristics of the tree that could help inform how innovative we can be. So I think it's a threefold thing. It's the innovation, collaboration, and creativity. How How do we manage for that? How do we identify blind spots and how do we kind of do what you're saying, um, approach work with a holistic, um, yeah. method. 
Well, I think, I mean, I think there are a couple of things that, that we can do. And I mean, one is, I mean, we, we talked about this a few months ago um, at the capacity building conference. I think instituting an innovation design approach to developing program, which inherently has you look at the end user first, right? And really talk about, and do the research, talk to the families, talk to the students to figure out what their needs really are. We understand that they don't know what they don't know, right? So there may be some needs that are not identified in that process. But I think starting with that process, it switches our perspective from sitting back and saying, well, I've read the research and this is what I think to really saying, okay, student and family, what do you think? What is your experience? Paying attention to the blind spots, right? What are they not saying? What is their body language like? How can I tell where their fear resides? How can I tell what things they're really excited about? And by nature of switching that, when we come back to compare it to research that has already been been done, it gives us a broader lens. And I think it helps to eliminate some of the blind spots. Like I don't, I guess I don't, I don't know if I believe that we can solve for every blind spot, but I do think that we can increase our ability to reduce the blind spots. But I definitely think that that's one way. I think another way is to bring more people to the table, right? And I think, I mean, bring more people different ages, um, different experiences, different cultures, different, because everyone, we all show up with what we were designed with from our own upbringing. Mm. And it does not make it right for every other person. Even if you consider yourself in the same culture or, you know, well, we grew up in the same neighborhood, your experiences were still different. And when we limit the people who are at the table for the sole purpose of ensuring the meeting goes by faster, yeah, we are increasing the number of blind spots we have because we have all the same people who look the same, who had the same experiences making decisions for a group of families and students that may or may not be what they really need. So again, another mic drop moment from Allie, a golden nugget that can be applied across the board. We're talking about diversity here, diversity of perspective, voice, race, ethnicity, gender, You name it, and that's what we're talking about. Because we represent and talk to and serve a diverse student population. And it would behoove us to have voices at the solution-making table that really understand the students that we're supporting and want to see succeed. So the next time you have a meeting, the next time you're talking about solutions, maybe ask yourself, who's at my table? Another really loaded question for you. Um, as a leader of this work, what like what are your recommendations for other leaders? And this is really broad. Um, so I'll let you choose um, <laughs> what what kind of topic or a pot you want to take recommendations from. But I don't know if we're looking at the folks that are either coming into college access work or even just coming into the work of serving students, period. What are your recommendations for them? I think my top, I probably have two two recommendations. And I think they are at every level. One, I think, is 
don't be afraid to do something that's never been done before. Right. Um, I think at minimum, you'll learn something in the process, even if it doesn't work. Right. I think doing the same thing is detrimental to the growth that we need to, that our students need to have. And so for us to do that ourselves, you know what I mean? To kind of limit ourselves in our thinking, I think just negatively impacts our progress. I think the other thing is not to let the responsibility of urgency derail a great process, right? I think in systems, when we work, when we all work in our systems, right, in our school districts and whatever, a lot of us get caught up in the, oh, we got to do, we got to do, we got to do, because it's an emergency. We got to do, we got to do, we got to do. And I think leaders, and I think and I actually believe everyone's a leader, right? <laughs> you know, you're a leader at no matter no matter what level you work at. At some point, folks need to say, stop, right? Let's be more thoughtful about the process. Let's incorporate student voice. Let's use an innovative design approach. We really have to think critically and don't let the pressures of everyone else's urgency derail you from doing what's right. And what's right is making sure that you are including the right people at the table and the right voices. I wonder, like, what are your thoughts on developing leaders and how do you do that? Is there a method to this? I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I, um, I don't know if there's necessarily a method. I know that I believe uh, that everyone is a leader, no matter what level you work at. And I know that I believe that I am no better or no worse than anyone else, right? I believe that we all bring something to the table. I mean, it's so weird when I'm in meetings and people are like, well, my name is Sam and I'm the vice president of, and my name is this. And I'm always like, I don't feel like I need to always give my title or or say my team or, because it's not, I don't own them, Right. We are all people who come to the table to provide supports for families and students. And everyone brings something different. There are things that some folks on my team have had experiences with that I've never experienced. And then there are things that I've experienced that they've never experienced. We all bring the same quality of expertise to the room. It just so happens that I have accountability, like our roles are different in that I have accountability and responsibility for the work, but I don't own them. They don't, I'm not smarter than them. I mean, I think if you are, I mean, you hear people say it all the time. If you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And I try to, as much as I can, ensure that people are valuing their own experience, their own thoughts and strengths, and that we're building on those things so that when they come into the space, they can lead with confidence, uh, with clarity, with direction, no matter what level they work at, right? I don't, I don't even care what level you work at. And, you know, maybe because I've worked at every single level and I know what it's like, and I've had, I've had a million different bosses, right? And some of them were very egotistical and needed to state their title and, you know what I mean, what they did and how fabulous they were. And I, it's just not who I am, right? I, I want people to be comfortable enough with me to um, tell me 
when I haven't considered every option or if it's something I'm not thinking about. Um, and I have to tell you, when I first became, um, when I first received a position where I had to manage other people, I was a pain in the, you know what? Because people would come to me and be like, well, what do we need to do? We need to do, we need to do. And what should we do about? And I would be like, I don't know what y'all think we should do. (laughs) And so that was a, that was a shift for people who weren't used to that type of behavior. But I think that what it did was it shifted. I helped, I hope I helped to shift people's perspective about what they brought to the table because I want to be able as someone who is responsible for work, I want to be able to leave and go handle something else and know that you've got it. And if you don't have the confidence to show up and know that you're an expert and you're a leader, no matter what level you're at, I can't leave you by yourself. You know what I mean? And and I want everyone to be able to move without me having to micromanage them. And the only way that I can do that is if everyone shows up into every room as if they're the expert. This is one of those things that I can absolutely attest to. I experienced it personally from Allie. She always called us experts as coordinators working for her. Um, And it was empowering, but it also helped with ensuring that everyone was invested in the work. Because as an expert, you were also asked to present at conferences, to facilitate meetings, and to sit at tables to discuss real problems, major issues, barriers, challenges. And so in a lot of ways, it helped to build us up professionally, but it also helped us to understand true collaboration. I actually think that in this space, in the gear up space and the college and career space at large, if we don't, as a community, start shifting our language around that, because the the true the reality is post-secondary readiness, college and career readiness, whatever you want to call it, it has to be integral in so many different spaces, departments, and content areas, if it's isolated, it's not going to be successful. Mm -hmm. And because it has to span and reach into so many different areas, if everyone on the team isn't a leader and able to show up in those areas as a leader, we are just going to be siloed in our work. And we're, we're five, 10 years from now, we're going to be wondering why um, all of our students haven't enrolled in some type of post-secondary readiness experience. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like it's, it's almost like we need people because we have to spread out so far. I don't know if any departments that has like, oh, well, I have 50 people that can go into each of these departments and lead this work, right? But we have to build the folks that we work with so that they can do that. Because we have to be connected to curriculum. We have to be corrected, connected to teaching and learning. We have to be connected to student rights and responsibilities. We have to be connected to multilingual programs. We have to be connected to specialized services because college readiness, post-secondary readiness, career readiness, whatever it is, they are all a piece of all of those buckets of work. So I like to ask people um, what their forecast is for education, for college and career readiness and all of these, whatever phrase you use to to capture this, this time. I I mean, COVID has dealt a blow to, um, to a lot of us, to most of us, to all of us. Um, And so I wonder, you know, what do you see happening in the next year or two with students, with education professionals, um, districts and organizations alike? I think I'm going to go back to, we need to 
talk directly to the people who have been impacted the most and really understand what their needs are, right? Because, I mean, sim- and, I, and I don't mean simple in that this isn't uh, major because this is major, but if you have a conversation with a family in regards to types of programming and you realize that there's food insecurity in that family and even going back to, you know, something that everyone, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, they don't give two craps about coming to a program when they're trying to feed their family, right? And so if, if we don't take the time to look and think and see beyond what we think we know, we're not going to be able to make any progress. The other thing I think, if I think about forecast, uh, one of the things that we're doing that I am, I am all over is this whole notion that career, college and career experiences have to be connected inherently to curriculum in some way, shape, or form. The college and career readiness conversation cannot happen with just the gear up professional, with just the counselor, with just the, like it has to be a school-wide conversation. Students should not be exploring careers or what majors they want to study or what's hot, what colleges they want to go to in the 12th grade, right? We should be having those conversations as, as soon as they're able to understand, right? Even in their, in their kindergarten books, we always see this is, this is a farmer, right? What about all of those other careers that are opportunities for our students? And then I think the, uh, the third thing I would say is one of the things that, um, I'm seeing now with students is that there's a a greater need for on and off ramps, right? That there are students who may be on some track and they may get off. They need a way to get back on and they need a way to get off and they need a way to get back on. So we can't think about the systems we create in a linear fashion anymore because there are students who have had to get off their train to college because their families need to provide some income or something. We need a way to, when they're ready or when they're able to come back and to get back on and support at different levels. So it's almost like we can't have this linear approach. We have to ensure that we have these differentiated models along the way to create these on and off ramps for students. And so as part of my forecast, I guess I would say, is the need to focus on that Mm. um, so that we can be more comprehensive in our approaches. Allie, what an excellent way to end today's episode. Thank you so much um, for joining us today. No, absolutely. This was such my pleasure. Um, I love to be here. I love to talk about the work that I do um, and hope that I can encourage some folks to shift their mindset, move in a new direction and increase support for families and children. I love it. Thank you so much. Allie is the Deputy Chief of Post-Secondary Readiness at the School District of Philadelphia. Thanks, Allie. The request for proposals application to present at the 2022 NSEP Europe Annual Conference, July 17th through the 20th, is officially open. We encourage members of the GEARUP community and other organizations committed to advancing college access, readiness, and success to submit a proposal. Before you submit a proposal, please be sure to check out our website for more information. 
see you soon, Garrett.